Escape from Plan A. This is another episode of Escape from Plan A. Um, a little change of pace. I'm going to be your host uh, this for this episode. I'm Jess, as a lot of you guys know. Um, and I have two really special guests. We've been trying to put together this episode for a, a really long time. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm actually really happy that uh, we were finally able to circle um, circle together and come talk. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to, uh, to to you guys. Can you Can you introduce yourselves? Maybe we'll start with Amanda. Uh, hey, I am, my name is Amanda. Um, I live in New York and I'm on Twitter. My handle is cat content only. All right. Uh, so my name is Gina. Um, some people out there know me as Pix. Um, and my handle on Twitter is Totorimok. And it's like impossible to I'm not even going to spell it out. You guys can come find me. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, it's such a, it, I have to change the handle if I actually want to have people find me, which I don't <laughs> care that much about. So I'm probably not going to change it, but it, it just means acorn jelly in Korean. A so. staple food. And honestly, like every time I go to H Mart and I, and I see that, I'm like, oh, my girl. <laughs> We're just like... <laughs> So yeah, we'll, we'll link your handles in the in the show notes for this episode. Please, I know a lot of you guys probably have heard or followed these wonderful ladies already, but if you don't, please do so. It's it's uh, they're doing amazing work on the ground here. Um, so um, so originally, um, I wanted to talk to you two um, a couple of months ago, um, around the around the time of the Atlanta shootings. Um, mm-hmm. um, to talk about, you know, uh, to specifically talk about, to address like the gendered nature of a lot of this violence that we're seeing going down. Um, and, you know, um, and I think like, like our schedules got in the way, a lot of that, uh, you know, and so one thing led to another, you know, um, so we couldn't really uh, find the time to do this until right now. Um, so we're out here like a couple of months later. Um, I still want to, I still want to explore that gendered angle to the to the violence, uh, but honestly, it's been just such an avalanche of uh, of violence across. Like, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's. I mean, I I think the Atlanta shootings were definitely. I mean, that's a definitely very stark and the most severe. Uh, but it's such a tidal wave of, of violence affecting everyone uh, who identifies and is, you know is seen to be Asian out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, but I wanted to talk to you guys because uh, I've seen all the work that you guys do on Twitter. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. I don't know if you are also active on like Facebook or wherever, but I, so I mostly know you guys through Twitter. Um, and I see you guys like, it's, it's, it's really admirable. Like you guys are always on there. Like when something happens, you're raising awareness, um, mm-hmm. you're highlighting causes, you're highlighting organizations, doing good work. You're doing analysis, uh, laying down, like educating and doing so much troll management that I'm I like I cannot believe how many idiots find their way to you guys like it's it's kind of crazy um so um I wanted to just 
know like how it is that like how you find uh that balance for yourselves like it's really hard like for me like seeing this and i I, i'm like okay i want to say something on twitter i should say something on twitter and then i kind of freeze it's like it's like Mm -hmm. it's it's it gets hard to know how to mm-hmm. protect my own mental health while also um, like being a res- what I would feel to be a responsible citizen, like being aware, being educated, um, being active, like raising awareness, all of that. So from two veterans of Twitter, battle hardened veterans, I wanted to, I wanted to hear your thoughts. Like, are you guys okay? <laughs> I'm really hoping you guys are okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest, <laughs> if I have to be like completely honest. Um, uh, yeah, it's been a really, I mean, it's been a really difficult year, first of all, um, with COVID. Mm-hmm. And then um, over the past few months, there has just been a, an extreme escalation in anti-Asian violence. I think like I was at a rally last week in um, Washington Heights. And one of the speakers mentioned that New York City alone had seen a 1900% rise in anti-Asian mm-hmm. attacks. Um, so, um, yeah, I think I think it's just one of these things that I, I probably repress. And then I don't realize how much it's affecting me until uh, I actually, like, stop mm-hmm. and, like, think about it, you know? So I, I don't think I really have a good strategy in terms of like managing and coping. Um, but it, I agree. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard to like wake up in a country where like over half a million people have died from COVID-19. And this was something that was like entirely preventable. Um, and it's just, you know, the faults of the government um, that all these lives were lost. And on top of that, just the uh, sharp escalation in racism against um, Asian people in the past year being scapegoated. Um, like, you know, just it's part of this like long history of um, anti-Asian racism in the U.S., And then, you know, being bombarded with these images of, uh, you know, anti-Asian attacks. So I don't know if I have any advice. I just, but I know how you feel. It's really difficult and it's been really difficult. Mm -hmm. This is is a cheap, probably super cheesy way to put it, but I I feel like I'm in the matrix sometimes. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's two layers to what's happening right now. Um, two different narratives. Mm-hmm. One is the media crafted narrative, what they want you to think is going on. Like they acknowledge, because obviously it's impossible to ignore that there are racist attacks happening against Asian people mm-hmm. day in and day out. So they make it onto the news. But then it's like, oh, we don't know why yeah. this is ha- why this is happening. Yeah. Um, anyway, stop Asian hate, and also it's China's fault that that mm-hmm. COVID happened, mm-hmm. and continuously just turning that that media wheel of just this breeding distrust of China in the media mm-hmm. um, and xenophobia, and so and then underneath that, like if you start to see past the bullshit, you're like, oh my god, this is obviously like connected mm-hmm. to this, you know, anti-China, anti-communist 
uh, crusade that's been going on in the media for years and years, and nobody seems to be acknowledging it. And then on the other hand, you have these super assimilationist Asians that are like trying to prove their patriotism and loyalty and all, all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> like just, and, and I, I hate, I hate that I used to be that I, I essentially used to be a, I guess this is a loaded term nowadays, but Boba liberal, uh, just basically trying to prove my Americanness and f- feeling like I had to prove that all the time was this underlying stress that I've gone through a lot of my life with. Mm-hmm. And I only recently, and then I say recently as in like the past two years or so, got radicalized mm-hmm. and got over that need to, um, you know, prove anything, at least to, you know, in terms of that, in terms of my Americanness. Uh, and so I know that's a lot. It's just, it's it's a lot that's been unfolding the past couple of years that has led to that, you know, that, um, that epiphany for me, I'm like, everybody is, if you, if you just look at mainstream media and what's going on, and then for some of us, even our families are still kind of trapped in that, right? Like I know my mom is, mm-hmm. um, then you just sort of see this accepted narrative and that's what's true for you. But knowing the actual truth is so much more stressful is what I'm getting at. It's like knowing what's actually going on is it's so much more stressful and taxing on my mental health. I feel like. Yeah, it really is like Amanda's. I I think you are the undisputed queen of pointing out hypocrisies and inconsistencies in our, you know, in the foreign policy press. And like, Mm -hmm. I see some of the, like you were the queen of these screenshots. Like they're just perfect. I've, 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 I've like, I'm like your fangirl. I haven't bookmarked. You're like, every t- like, just wait for an idiot to confide me. I got the perfect screenshot to shut that shit down. And like, she's, she's, she's amazing at that. And then like, some of them are just like so egregious and so like blatant. Um, right. It's so blatant. Um, but honest, honestly, like you posted there and I'm like, okay, well, surely the game's over now. She has surely called it. Holy shit. Oh, this guy got another, you know, seven figure paying job at this CIA funded think tank. Well, I guess not. And then she tweets again. I'm like, how did she not just like throw her phone at the wall? Yeah. I'm a total fan. I'm a total fan of the account. It's, it's great. Thank you. Yeah. I think so, you know, I think what's interesting about that is it's sort of like, um, a frog in boiling water (laughs) situation where if you took each of these headlines that I, you know, tweet out in complete isolation, you would just be like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But the propaganda the propaganda campaign against China has been like sort of steadily um, escalating in the past like couple of years, year and a half. And really, um, it's just like really increased uh, after COVID last year, right? Yeah. And so these sorts of stories became more and more egregious, more and more sensational. To the point where we're like in boiling water now and we don't even realize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, the denial you know, is strong. Sometimes the denial, denial hits me harder um, yeah. than the actual like blatant, like even the sometimes more than like the blatant aggression or the racism or the xenophobia. Mm-hmm. It's the, no, mm-hmm. this is fine. This is entirely, you know, this is perfect spa wa- temperature water. I'm not yeah. looking. 
Why are you? Well, you know what? So um, now it like people in uh, mainstream publications are openly calling for like a coup in China, Mm -hmm. openly calling for regime change. Um, And this has been something that I don't know, like I feel like a couple of years ago that probably wouldn't fly. But now, like with COVID and all of these accusations lobbed at China for different things, you know, in terms of COVID, um, China was accused of uh, like covering up information in the beginning um, and then silencing whistleblowers, which uh, supposedly um, created this global pandemic in the beginning. Um, There's been like, a lot of coverage about Xinjiang. Um, and before that, there was a lot of coverage about the Hong Kong protests. So now um, it's it seems like it's perfectly acceptable to say in a mainstream publication, um, you know, the communists, the Chinese Communist Party should be overthrown and replaced with something different. And it's, uh, you know, perfectly acceptable to say that the U.S. can and should have a role in that. Yeah. Well, and then in any, you know, Middle Eastern country, you know, in the past couple decades, I mean, it's been so normalized that the U.S. is the harbinger of freedom or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, the shining beacon uh, country that it's perfectly acceptable to say that the U.S. is going to go into some other country and change things up. Mm -hmm. And that's just been normalized in the media. So you kind of already have that, like, that premise, you know, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe propaganda mm-hmm. that that props all that up too, just um, that type of thing that's been going on for forever, <laughs> and and then um, and then the latent xenophobia even before talking about um, CCP or anything like that, just the um, you know that it's as subtle as like dissing something by saying it was probably made in China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that sort of, um, that sort of underlying just casual, uh, casual xenophobia, Mm -hmm. I guess that's just been normalized for so many decades that it's perfectly normal. Um, It was, it was how people would talk about um, Japanese made stuff before that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's all it's all enabled. I feel like this um, the acceptance of that media narrative is like it's like the building blocks were set in the very, very beginning back when Chinese folks like immigrated mm-hmm. to the US and got used as cheap labor and mm-hmm. just the dehumanization has sort of has a thread that goes way back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's why. I think that's why like stop Asian hate is such a, is such a toothless demand. Right. Um, it just feels like, I mean, I've said this before. It just feels like, um, a slogan that was focus grouped to appeal to the largest segment of people possible, like completely like depoliticized. Um, it doesn't really, it sort of like locates racism as purely an interpersonal feeling um, so that like if racism is just a matter, if racism is just a matter of uh, interpersonal feeling among individuals, then the solution will always 
be an individualist one. Um, so you can solve racism through like more education. Um, so, but you know, like uh, as you know, what was mentioned earlier, um, anti-Asian racism is something that is like foundational to this country. It's, it's existed since the first Chinese immigrants immigrated here to dig for gold, um, to build the railroads. Um, the first restrictive immigration laws were directed at Chinese immigrants, yeah, right? The first and uh, I believe only specifically race-based immigration ban yeah. in, in, yeah, in the United States. Specific to a na- a nationality, right? Yeah, yeah, so it's really frustrating. I mean, maybe it's apropos that um, it's we're, we're talking about this like in AAPI History Month. Yay! Woo! Oh, um, yeah, I know, yeah. right? It's like, oh, oh, okay, I get yay from me. Um, but it's like, like there's this like this, like this is per, this pervasive erasure of that history. Like this stuff mm-hmm. doesn't get talked about at all. Nobody knows just how nobody knows just how foundational Asian American history actually is to the history of America, right? Nobody knows that you know it's actually mm-hmm. the test case of a uh, of an Asian man um, who mm-hmm. tested the case for birthright citizenship in the United States. Another, uh, what people would think of as a core American principle. Um, the only race-based immigration ban is again, you know, Asian. Um, I mean, and the list just goes on and on. Um, th- I'm not saying this to be like, please see me as American. Uh, it's not about, th- it's just like, it's just, it's just so insidious to see how systemically all this stuff gets erased. And that creates mm-hmm. the perfect breeding ground to treat us as, and I think this is what like perpetual foreigner tries to get at, right? It's not, I think it's been watered down to be something like Amanda, like you said, like, a kind of an interpersonal like social malaise like oh you just don't mm-hmm. see me as one of you uh, which it which makes it just sound like you know like schoolyard politics but i mean the deeper thing to perpetual foreigner is that like our history in this country is almost completely erased we are just seen as alien mm-hmm. like we have no presence in this country and therefore no ownership stake um, that we, our mm-hmm. presence here is entirely conditional on, um, I don't like conditional on, you know, our good behavior, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not true. Um, and it's so hard to convey that, especially on a medium like Twitter. It's like, okay, I only have 180 characters to unpack your bullshit. Um, and there's so much of it. Um, but I'm going to try. And I know your response is going to be, but the Uyghurs. And I'm going to be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, all right, we're just going to have to block and move on. And I'm going to have to pretend that there isn't, like, a, that that is not just like the majority opinion in this godforsaken country at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, so I, I mean, that, so that's really frustrating. Like, there is just, there's just so much, um, it's, like, it's not even, a, it's not a matter of education, um, but like, there's just, none of that to begin with, right? Like people aren't educated on these things. And now, you know, with that, uh, and with xenophobia and racism having already flourished, it's hard to then kind of re-educate people on top of mm-hmm. that without, uh, and we've, all three of us have faced this, being accused of being like CCP apologists or outright spies mm-hmm. or, you know, tankies, the new, the new uh, hot word that's being thrown around. Oh, that was a milestone for me when I finally got called a tanky on Twitter. I was like, I've made it. <laughs> um, yeah, you get and like, yeah, 
I just it's it's crazy how quickly that term took off and then like immediately became meaningless. Like everyone can just yeah. call the tanky now. Yeah, and yeah. Just disagree, yeah, yeah. especially if you disagree and you're not and you're a racialized person, and then automatically yeah. you're a tanky. Um, yeah. So this is why I don't think like like the solution is necessarily more education. I like in order to address anti Asian racism, you sort of have to like get at the root of the problem, which is um, European and U.S. imperialism, right? U.S. military ambitions in the Asia Pacific. Um, We have this false idea of uh, Asian people being a model minority in this country, but that model minority is a white supremacist creation. Um, The fact of the matter is, is that Asian lives have always been devalued and Asian people have always been dehumanized. Um, And that's how you can get, that's how the U.S. got away with like what it did in Vietnam, um, how, what it did in Korea, just like completely leveled the Korean peninsula, um, committed a genocide, basically bombed uh, the peninsula until there were no more meaningful targets. Um, bomb Laos, uh, made it the most bombed country in history. Um, that still so, claims lives every year to this day yeah, from unexploded yeah. ordinance. Yeah, yeah. And so this propaganda campaign that we're seeing against China right now, that is just a continuation of uh, U.S. military ambitions in that part of the world. Um, and that explains you know, this media, this corporate media propaganda campaign um, that has really ramped up in the past year. Um, And that also explains this sharp rise in uh, violent attacks against Asian people. I just don't think that you can talk about that without like linking the two, Um, which is why I, I don't think Stop Asian Hate is a really good rallying cry to organize around because I just think it's a dead end. Yeah, it's very limited. Um, so stop Asian hate. Um, it implies it's a it's it's the same reason why I've seen a lot of uh, of uh, black leaders criticize just the slogan BLM Black Lives Matter because the inherent question mm-hmm. to that is well matters to who that's actually a really odd slogan. There's an implicit mm-hmm. appeal to someone else's better nature in that True. like like yeah. saying black lives matter and the question is black lives matter too and my art our stance of the proper stance should be that's not even a question of course they matter the entire issue is the systemic devaluing of that inherent worth but we're not that yeah. worth should not be in question i feel the same thing happened with this who came up with that hashtag anyway do you it suddenly just kind of came up out of nowhere I'm, it seems it sounded workshopped as hell uh, like, oh, Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Lives? No, stop no, Asian stop hate. Asian hate. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just saw it on Twitter all of a sudden, and then everyone was tweeting it. Yeah. Um. So it just kind of swept us. So prior to that going viral, like I was in a private group chat of a um, bunch of mutuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys will know most of them, and we were actually, I think, uh, to some extent, trying to workshop like a workable slogan or workable, you know, hashtag, because at the time it was something like um, stop AAPI hate or hashtag Asians are human, which is terrible, yeah. just terrible. I mean, like, I've seen that do like, we really ooh. have to say that? 
like, I, I, I kind of don't want to even imply the question in that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you trying to say here? I mean, yeah. and it, the, the fact that somebody thought that that was something that they had to argue to was just like, okay. Um, but we were like, we don't really have a hashtag and we definitely can't say Asian lives matter, even though I saw ha- that hashtag circulating mm-hmm. too and it's still circulating. Um, but it there really didn't seem to be like something that everybody could agree on. Mm-hmm. And we also discussed the fact that, you know, we wanted, we didn't want something to be surface level, but at the same time, you know, if you make it to politically, you know, specific to, um, what's actually the root cause of the anti-Asian racism, Mm -hmm. then um, you risk people not bothering to share it or it's not going to catch on to enough people. Because I think a big part of this problem, the sort of nationwide problem in America right now is that, um, well, Asian America is so diverse and amongst Asian American communities there's there's a lot of anti-China sentiments even within mm-hmm. the Asian American community. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. They often get weaponized as well. Um, I mean, like how many how many articles have we read uh, that was just like really racist in nature toward China and Chinese people? And then you look at the byline. And it turns out it was written by um, a Chinese American. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, there is like there is like a strain of anti-communism and uh, just like reactionary politics that uh, like are found within uh, Asian American communities and Asian immigrants who like have come here. Um, and they're often weaponized by the ruling class um, against their homelands. Yeah, totally. I it's mean, really unfortunate. To yeah, see. this is another uh, another stereotype of minorities, which is that all minorities are a block, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is how this 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 thing propagates. So you get one reactionary voice, and they get published in the New York Times, and you know what's happening is that they're just going to assume that oh, all Asians, at least in America, think like this person. This is a representative opinion set for representing all of these people. Um, mm-hmm. A, that's not true, and B, if you actually think like. To, it's actually like it actually makes a lot of sense if you just take one step to even think about it and think about who would make that journey over to the United States. Yeah. Uh, given the yeah. historical conditions of that time. Like, I don't think you're going to get I mean, the by and I mean, I know it's it, it the story of immigration spans a huge spectrum. But it's not it's more likely than not that you are going to find someone in America who is Asian, who has family history here because they did not like the conditions back home. Similar to the story of like like the the Florida Cubans. Right. And I know how they get weaponized a lot against uh, against Cuba and Castro Mm -hmm. and communism in that region as well. So it's the same Mm -hmm. thing here. And it's just it's it's just never stops being frustrating because it's I it seems highly reasonable that given that we are a diverse people, we would have diverse opinions. It doesn't actually bother me to think that there are people at all ends of the spectrum. It's that it, you can see the intention so clearly when a few select people at a certain point in the spectrum get selectively advanced to propagate. Like once you see that, I think the game is over. 
Um, and yet you don't even have to be ethnically Chinese either. Yeah. It's like the racialization of Asian faces works against us here a little bit because I mean, I'll think I'll list an example local to me. I just drove by all of her stupid signs the about other day because it was a Sari yeah. Kim. <laughs> she, oh my god, I have to see her face on the signs everywhere. I don't really. She's know. still um, in the race. Wow, she's running. Yeah, yeah she's running. Um, and she she was the. For for everybody who might not know who she is, um, she is the um, running for a local election in in Fort Worth around Fort Worth, and she went on a racist tirade against Chinese immigrants of all people, saying that um, I don't want them here. Mm. You know, I don't want to see them in my country. And frankly, I can say that because I'm Korean. Mm-hmm. It was the most absurd thing, and we we had a lot of. Um, you know, uh, public figures who were Korean American condemn her words because, I mean, you cannot defend that. That was just so blatantly racist. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it got published and she didn't immediately get shot down by everybody around her um, speaks to like how much. And I think, you know, I don't know if this is like um, gendered as well. I mean, you were talking about like the gendered nature of this sort of this racial dynamic with with Asians. I I feel like I see more um, Asian women Republicans, Mm. you know, saying that kind of stuff, just going off and getting away with it, Mm -hmm. I think. And then they'll they'll cry sexism or something if they get called out, too. And so they kind of weaponize that. I think we're also speaking for sure. I, I, I notice exactly the same thing. Um, and the Democrats aren't uh, innocent of that either. There's just, I haven't quite thought it through. I don't have a consistent like theory on it, but it's just so interesting to see how uh, like minority women kind of trade on that image of pure like vulnerability and kind of, and I think it trades on mm-hmm. like the, like um, the stereotype of like the inherent morality of women that women are going to be family oriented caretakers um, inherently like morally upstanding. And this gets weaponized so easily along, you know, gender and race and political terms. It's It's gendered, but I also think we're um, speaking to like a class divide uh, among the community. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you were saying earlier that, um, you know, there's like, most people who like immigrate here, um, they are of like a certain class who are able to immigrate here. Not mm-hmm. always, but um, they're probably going to be well off and the, their politics will reflect that. Um, and so, you know, they have, they or their children go to these like elite schools and they, um, they become part of this like middle class that ends up speaking for the entire diaspora. Um, and this is that's sort their of leverage. how that's their power. Yeah. Uh, to claim that they, how, are, they can bring this block of voters or attention or mm-hmm. whatever they can leverage that in service. Yeah. To and this goal. is how like the model minority myth mm-hmm. uh, just continues. Right. Because you see all of these people who are like, well off and you know they're highly educated and they they're part of like a high income bracket and then um people point to them and they're like oh you know east asians are really well off they're doing better than white people 
Um, but you know, like, um, the model minority myth is just, it's exactly that it's a myth. Um, it was created during the cold war, um, that was advanced by the ruling class because it was a time of, you know, national liberation movements, um, across Africa. And at that time, China was extending solidarity to those national liberation movements, Mm -hmm. but also like the black struggle in the United States, and then also materially supporting uh, national liberation struggles in Africa and like um, giving them money and developing their infrastructure and then training uh, their soldiers in China. Um, And so there was this like black Asian unity at that time, which the U.S. found very threatening. So um, they started like advancing this like idea that, um, you know, they sort of singled out Asian Americans and they were like, look at this group of, uh, look at this minority group who can get ahead and achieve social mobility um, and like attain a middle-class existence Uh, without like making demands of the state without like demanding any sort of like political or social reorganization. And it was uh, deliberately like created to divide a wedge, like create to like divide and put a wedge between black and Asian communities. Um, And like, I, we're still seeing the effects of that today, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's really, it's a really, it's, a really damaging force um, because a lot of people conceive of Asian Americans in that way. But in New York city, um, Asian Asians have the highest poverty rate Mm -hmm. of any racial group here. Um, And people living in Chinatown live in like are very, very poor, but they can't get the resources they need because people think that they, you know, they don't need them because, you know, they look at all these successful Asian Americans and they're like, you don't need these resources. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really bad. And then it just, it's really like annoying when something like the Atlanta shootings happen and this class of people like kind of come to the forefront and speak for the entire diaspora. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they, like the demands they always make are really superficial ones. Like, uh, Oh, we need more representation in media. We Mm -hmm. need to see our faces in movies and in books. And we need our, like, we need uh, our culture respected Mm -hmm. and never like, so you have all these like ridiculous essays about how uh, essays about like assimilation anxiety and how they were never made to like, feel like they fit in as children, how like white kids made fun of their like smelly lunches mm-hmm. or how, um, you know, the, the answer to all of this is more representation in media. Um, 
Yeah, I think that yeah, is it's a just really like, bad one. Um, there was a, there was an essay that I read um, shortly after the Atlanta shootings. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how quick they are on this ball. Like I was like just like non-functional for days afterwards. But uh, apparently, the our you know our in, our pseudo intellectual class was busy at their MacBooks cranking out these essays, getting getting that bag, getting published at the Atlantic. And I swear they were talking about the the Atlanta shootings, but the bulk of it was how othered she felt as a child at her private prep school talking about how all the other rich white kids wouldn't give her time of day and like i'm sorry you have like oh my god i i (laughs) and you know um like i had recently learned about you know the 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 term necropolitics uh leverage Mm -hmm. death and i feel like this is this is something to call out here this is our own they're definitely asian no one's trying to kick you out of the club or anything it's not about that but it's definitely people within this uh within this diaspora leveraging this trauma this suffering this death these massacres for very personal gain like who does it serve um to talk about like I I know exactly the demands you're talking about. I see them like they want mm-hmm. more positions at like really highly paid, you know, as staff at like the New York Times, or mm-hmm. they want more C-suite positions at Disney or something. We need, you know, we're all like, yay, Simu Liu is Shang Chi. That's that's somehow like a win. Um, I don't know. My life has not changed one bit because of that um, Marvel announcement. I'm sorry. Um, and then as soon as these wins are announced, because they will give it to us. Um, like Disney, Disney saw where the pot, where the money's going. So they gave us these representational wins. And as soon as that's met, like the demands stop, there's nothing deeper than that. Um, it's yeah. really disheartening to see. Um, I just want to point out like that the class divide within Asians is made even worse by the fact that there's usually also a language divide. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the lower class is typically more recent immigrants. Um, they typically do not speak English as a primary language. And you can see it in stuff like whenever, um, you know, they polled, um, Asian Americans to see, uh, what percentage of Asian Americans, um, experienced financial hardship. And it turned, that poll turned out to be, uh, kind of a low percentage you know, lower than you would expect. And then they realized that, oh, we just did this whole poll in English, you know? Uh, People who did not speak English did not answer this poll. So, of course, it's going to be a very low, a lower percentage than what you think. Mm -hmm. Which then gets turned around and says, oh, I've seen this in, like, academic papers. It gets used to say, oh, well, Asians just aren't politically engaged. Like, uh, like bias, like, it's just, it's just, like, a century of shit piled up on top of each other, and we're, like, slowly trying to, like, like, unpack each layer, and it just seems to get worse and worse as you get down to it. But if you look at, like, the actual um, victims of these attacks, they're not of this class of people Mm -hmm. that we're talking about right now. Yes. They are, they're, like, the vulnerable members of the community, they're, not, they tend not to be like as assimilated. They don't speak English very well. They're often um, older elders. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often like live in Chinatown and they're targeted uh, specifically because they're seen as vulnerable and they can't speak English well and they may not be able to ask for help or like navigate the legal system or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's just like, 
there's just like this rift between the victims of the violence themselves and then who gets to speak on behalf of them. Who gets to profit off of that. Yeah, yeah, who gets to exactly. get the get the clicks, go viral, get that you know, get that speaking gig at a at a conference or something? There's they're completely mm-hmm. different people. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. saw you know a a pretty a pretty prominent Asian. Uh, I don't want to give him any more attention, but we all know him. I remember like after one of the the attacks- is this a certain novelist? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I remember he did, he did something, um, I, after one of the, um, it's, it's like horrifying that all the attacks in like New York are blurring in my head. It was after one of those. Um, but he's talking about like, like he's actually trying to like get down and talk, give real talk. Like, okay, I'm going to actually give you advice on what not to do and stuff like take an Uber. Don't go on the subway, take an Uber to go to and from work. Um, Come to California, where most people drive cars, so you don't oh have God. to encounter. Hire people. a private driver if you have yeah. your own private driver. Yeah. If you have your own limousine, yeah. you don't have to leave the house. Yeah, like get your groceries <laughs> delivered to you. Um, like, like, oh my God, you, I'm embarrassed for you. I have, like, I, how, I like, how am I sitting here, like, dying of embarrassment on your behalf? And you think that you're actually giving good advice. And then he actually, and then later, like, I noticed he's speaking on some, like, Stop Asian Hate panel with a bunch of, like, white journalists and think tank people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just, like, at that point, it's like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to just explode in frustration and anger here. Um, so... That's that's it. I that's that's just it. I'm just like in this like constant stew of like, like how do you not see this? This is this is so outrageous. This is so wrong, and that there are so many people who, uh, it's to me, it's almost sure. Like if you're outside a community, I'm expecting you to not get what's going on. That's how bad it is. It's just it makes me feel so um, unnerved to see how much denial of that is going on from inside the house here. Um, there's, I still know people who are, um, um, who are in denial at, at the extent of what's going on. I think that's been going down, like just, it's getting so on, like so hard to ignore. Um, Has Kimmy Yam stopped questioning whether hate crimes are actually happening yet? I just know that was a thing for a while. Oh, we just kept calling her oh, out. God. Like, Stop <laughs> my questioning migraine. whether these are hate crimes. <laughs> I... I, that was such a bad article. Um, I, I mean, later on, she started talking about these hate crimes. So presumably, she she decided to fix her mouth and get her head straight on on this. But she never formally retracted that one. And I think that's the one that actually got the most traction um, of all the pieces. And that's like the same, right? You put out this inflammatory material that caters to a particular view, uh, that flatters a particular view. And that's the thing that's going to gain traction. Any like apology for it or any course correction after that doesn't actually undo that harm. Um, so this is just, I don't, I just in the age of social media, I think it's just such a dangerous tendency. Um, you're incentivized to just do your worst and then apologize quietly after. Um, so I, I, I really like that. I really like that you guys call it out. Um, I like that there's actually a lot of consensus on, on social media right now. 
Um, I don't know what, uh, I don't know if you guys are seeing the same thing, but I'm starting to see a little bit more like common understanding, like a little bit less uh, of the, like the liberal deflection, the denialism and a little bit more like, okay, this is a, pro- um, like it's a, it, like the bar is so low. I'm happy if everyone just acknowledges that there is a problem. Um, and I think that's a pretty recent development. Everyone's like, we're at this point, like we're talking about the problem. We're going to differ on how to solve it or what the full extent of it is, but at least we're understanding that there is a problem, that it is a problem if someone's grandma is being attacked outside a subway station. Like that's such, I definitely think that people realize that there is a problem now. Um, I think the next step is, um, sort of making people make that connection between uh, like U.S. Mm -hmm. imperialism uh, to uh, what's happening now Um, and specifically the role that, uh, you know, U.S. interests in China play in that. Um, Do you see any headway? Um, do you notice a little, any change so. in the idiocy in your replies or anything? Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Like <laughs> maybe I feel like, uh, people are, uh, more receptive to this now than they were a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people, I mean, we're talking about like people who grew up, who are children of nine 11. Right. And mm-hmm. all they've known is just like constant continuous war. And they remember, um, I mean, if they don't remember uh, like the first lies that we told to get into like start a war with Iraq the first time, Mm -hmm. um, Naira, right? Um, They definitely remember the lies about weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And I think, I I think people are more, they're very receptive to the idea that, you know, U.S. interests, U.S. will say and do anything to achieve U.S. interests. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're more willing to read uh, what's being printed about China in a more critical light. Um, So online, I have seen that sort of shift in the past year. Um, in terms of offline, I'm seeing it too. And I think it's very promising. Mm -hmm. Um, so here in New York city, there have been, you know, quite a few anti-Asian hate rallies. Um, like, you know, in the past few months, there was a really large one in Chinatown a couple of months ago, right, right after the Atlanta shootings. And, uh, it was like a very, it was it was organized by uh, a very liberal organization and they invited Chuck Schumer and Andrew Yang to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like Chuck Schumer took the mic and he went like pretty hard, like all in on the model minority myth. He was like, <laughs> Chinese people, Asian, Asian people don't deserve this. Um, they're hardworking, family oriented, um, and it was just really ridiculous. And then Andrew I'm Yang, lazy as shit. Do I still count? <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <Like, laughs> um, but there were like there were like a lot of politicians that mm. they'd invited to speak, and they would talk about like increasing the NYPD budget. Mm. And a lot of people in the audience 
uh, in response would chant defund the police. So I think that the crowd seemed a bit like to the left of the speakers and to the organizers. So I think there is sort of, um, you know, there's, there's an opening there for this kind of message. And um, we organized Answer Coalition, we organized um, another rally in Flushing, uh, maybe a couple of weeks later. And our, our political messaging was like pretty strong in terms of like, hey, stop this anti-China propaganda. This is what's causing uh, this mm-hmm. rise in hate crimes. And we were very explicit in drawing the link between the history of, um, you know, war and imperialism in that area in Asia to what's happening now. And the response to it was like really positive. Like I thought everyone responded really, really well. Um, And they were really receptive. Um, So I definitely see an opening there. And I think, like, we should be strong in that political messaging. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the big, un- like, like it was really an eye-opener. Like, the more you read history, um, it just falls into place. There doesn't have to be, like, an ideology mm-hmm. pitched to you. Just If you just read a timeline of what happened and who did it to whom, it just all, mm-hmm. the narrative kind of unpacks itself. I feel like mm-hmm. if you are open to actually learning, um, mm-hmm. as the first, there are just so many rabid, you know, um, you know, running dogs for war, for mm-hmm. empire, uh, running loose, and they tend to get very. Um, uh, there, it's a powerful block of it's, and it's it's hard to shake that that uh, uh, that mentality. I feel like. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you look at what happened after 9-11 and you saw, you know, it was very clear that Muslims and Arab Americans were being targeted um, and attacked on the basis that, you know, that they were being blamed for 9-11. That's undeniable. Um, And I think what's happening right now is very similar. Asian Americans are being scapegoated for, for COVID. Um, and I don't understand how people can't really like see that connection. Yeah, it gets pretty undeniable. Like um, you brought up, uh, you brought up the example of Japan uh, earlier, and I feel like the trajectory of Japan in the United States kind of it kind of is a test case for what we're talking about right here. Like it's not theoretical; we've already established it um, within our lifetimes. Here, we're both we're all like millennials here. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we. Um, so within our lifetimes, Japan went from like the number one enemy of the United States in terms of like the tech war, um, you know, eco- uh, as the as part of the economic war, um, like Vincent Chin was murdered as a result of anti-Japanese sentiment. Um, and where are we now? Right. With Japan. Japan's now the cuddly, cutesy anime producer. They do cool shit with robotics. Like no one remembers that level of anti-Japan like hysteria that went on in the 90s. And that entire and that entirely ramp both ramped up and ramped down directly because of where of uh, of where Japan stood in relation to the U.S. economically and militarily. Like once the U.S. like once the, the Japanese financial crisis hit uh, with a lot of American engineering behind it too, 
um, and Japan started uh, slipping in terms of its technological prowess, um, their reputation got completely rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is so I feel like this is an entire case study in exactly how State Department narratives and our you know the military goals, the military objectives of the of the U.S. is implicitly tied to how uh, to this rhetoric around these countries. Mm-hmm. There's really no other way to explain just how. Uh, there's really, to me, there's no real explanation for why, you know, anti-Japan sentiment was strong enough that it got a man murdered in cold blood for, uh, because of, you know, Jap- Japanese automakers out to steal American jobs. And here we are, like, in 2021, no one has anything bad to say about Japan. That's a pretty remarkable, like, shift in opinion that you wouldn't think could happen within one person's lifetime. And we're not even that old, I, I like to think. Uh, like, we're, like... So I feel like this is so when we're seeing this ratcheting up of anti-Chinese sentiment, I feel like it's actually escalated pretty quickly. There's always been that like lingering xenophobia and racism. But this dialing up is just it's mind blowing to me. It's just within the last handful of years that I feel like they really tried to turn the dial straight up to 12, basically. Um, Have I been out of the loop or do you guys see that like that that abrupt escalation? It's been, I mean, I remember a YouTube video from 2010 that had, um, it was released by uh, Americans Against Government Waste or something like that. It was um, some organization that released it. It's a super racist video. It's basically just propaganda about how China is going to own America one day and um, they're all going to work. We're all going to work for China and everyone's going to speak Chinese it's, you know, going to take over essentially just straight up yellow peril uh, propaganda. But it came from like this sort of um, right wing anxiety about uh, U.S. national economic dependence on China, you know, and the, and the debt um, that we owe to China mm-hmm. financially. So that got turned into, well, China's going to own us and look how horrible that would be, like just so blatantly racist and that was 2010 um i saw that and i was like this looks like it could have come out last year Mm. (laughs) like the message has not changed Mm -hmm. it just hasn't changed um yeah i yeah i think a lot of this has to do with china's remarkable rise just over the past Mm -hmm. 100 years or so just from being you know like if it were up to the US and Europe, it would just return China to like the warlord era Mm -hmm. where it was like completely like split up and split up among imperialist powers. Mm -hmm. Um, But a giant resource for to be uh, to be commandeered and owned by foreign powers. Yeah, like a giant sweatshop just to create uh, Mm -hmm. goods for for the US. Um, But like, like it's remarkable rise from, you know, from 1949 on um, to this point where it's about to eclipse the U.S. in like 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and like the the sun is just setting on the U.S. empire and the U.S. just can't like conceive of that, you know. That's all it really boils down to, mm-hmm. I think, is just... Um, just geostrategic competition and the U.S. not being able to to accept that um, you know this 
this country, this non-white country is about to uh, like eclipse it Mm -hmm. in just a few years. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I get I get a sense of that. I see that every time you see it, like a, an emissions report come out um, and like, oh, Ch- China is, uh, you know, China's like the number one polluter or something. Um, and there and when people kind of break it down, they get eco fascist so quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. like they talk about, oh, there's rising meat consumption in China. The Chinese people are, you know, improving their own standard of living. And it's like, oh, God, yeah. no. Like, like, what do you mean? Like they're eating meat and enjoying life? Like, oh, God, no. Like, no. That's not for them. That's for us. They're supposed to just be the peasants that give that to us. We got to put a stop to this. I just get that just jumps out at me. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This idea that like other countries could seek an alternative to uh, like U.S. hegemony is like they can't they we can't accept it. Mm -hmm. Um, Look at. I mean, okay, so part of the reason why that uh, Xinjiang has been, there's been such an emphasis on Xinjiang recently is because um, it's an important hub in China's Belt and Road Initiative, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The Belt and Road Initiative is a land trade route, which would um, ship Chinese goods to its largest market, Europe. Um, currently, uh, China is dependent on the maritime trade route that uh, the U.S. has complete dominance over. So if they want to ship goods to Europe right now, they have to go by ship uh, through the Pacific, um, through the Indian Ocean. And um, these ships have to bypass these uh, U.S. military checkpoints um, because they have U.S. military bases all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if it wanted to, if the U S wanted to, they could blockade a ship at one of their ports and just, uh, collapse the entire Chinese economy. Mm -hmm. Um, so in order to like get around that, they're create, they're building this land route that runs through central Asia through Xinjiang. Um, and you know, that is a large part of the reason why, um, you know, we've been hearing about like human rights abuses and like accusations of genocide uh, in Xinjiang. And, you know, this is not to say that there's like not mistreatment, but there is like very little like substantial evidence of an actual genocide. Right. I I'm, I mean, it's it started to seem to me that this appeal to human rights is actually a very democrat friendly uh maneuver it's a liberal uh friendly maneuver uh the whole like mm-hmm. you know china gave us covid or stole our job that's actually to me that actually feels like a more a, a more a more appealing argument to like a right wing uh american uh, so I feel like we just, like in the last year we just have like the perfect bipartisan shit sandwich to uh, to manufacture consent for this. Like I knew a lot of Democrats, you know, liberal people who are self described liberals, holding strong against the whole like, oh well, that's really dumb to like blame individual Chinese people for COVID. Uh, like that part was like 
like that i felt like there was very little um like animosity on that front um it's just in the latter half of last year when we really started to see more uh reporting air quotes on human rights abuses that you really started to see them kind of get on board uh the same anti-hate train that like the republican you know um you know woo flu uh people were already on the first half of the year so um so it's uh like is my timeline wrong like do you guys see that too like i feel like this human rights thing is actually bringing more like liberal people in to uh Mm -hmm. into the fold like um i don't think it's really an appeal um to say like uh to you know the stereotypical like republican voter um who spent 20 years talking about you know how it's it's great that we're at war with muslims in the middle east it's kind of i think it's still defies credulity to expect them to make a hard pivot and suddenly like want to go to war to defend muslims um even if it's against china um yeah whenever i look at the right-wing dialogue you know in in their news media i don't really see a whole lot about xinjiang or mm -hmm. um you know the the muslims you know who are undergoing a genocide i think they could frankly care less about that Mm -hmm. And if I had to be really honest, I think the left-wing news outlets that are reporting on this and, you know, just making a bunch of noise about it, Mm -hmm. I think that deep down inside they could care less about it too. Mm -hmm. I think it's completely a talking point of, you know, how do we we shine a light on this other country's faults when conditions are being really terrible and – honestly, just getting worse and worse. Conditions are just getting worse in the, mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, especially for like poor people and um, immigrants. Mm-hmm. And how do we draw attention away from that and focus on these terrible human rights abuses going on in a, in a different country? It's um, yeah. it, with right-wing dialogue, it's all economic anxiety and now the perfect scapegoat um, putting, pinning COVID and associating China with, with COVID-19. I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a good point. Um, It's entirely projection on our part to completely deflect on like our own shortcomings and our own handling of this COVID crisis and half a million deaths. Um, And the thing with China is that it's been, it, like it's been dehumanized. Chinese people have been dehumanized and the government itself so vilified for so long that you can make any sort of accusation without any sort of basis at all. And people will believe it. They got that um, machine it, ticking. It's, it's such a well-oiled machine. I still is, haven't seen yeah. anything that topped the, uh, do, you remember, do you guys remember the, uh, that Taiwanese fetish doll? That went around. No, no it was it no. was crazy. Um, so it's a it's a, it's a video of like um, just it, they're testing out like a, a sex doll basically. It's a Taiwanese okay. like sex doll, um, and there's just like it's just kind of like it's it's just kind of like twirling around. And they just put it as like um, this is an example like leaked footage of Chinese torture, and it just and it just went all over the internet. Oh, I think I wait, I think. That. Wait, am I thinking of something? Is this a different thing? Because I'm thinking of this video that was taken in like a Thai BDSM dungeon. I think by, so. Okay, uh, Thai. Someone, All right. 
Yeah, not. But someone uh, tweeted it out saying that it was a video of a Uyghur getting tortured. Yes, yes, that one. Is this? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that yeah, one. yeah, 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 and yeah. Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. It was a person in their underwear, right? And they were being turned around, like like they were tied up to a pole and getting turned yeah, around. Like yeah, yeah. They, they had on like a vinyl, like, a like yeah, kind, of, yeah. Yeah. Um, they were in like a full body, like latex suit. Um, yeah. Yeah, but if you uh, read any article on Xinjiang. Like invariably, somewhere buried within the article, it will say we can't verify. We can't corroborate. Yeah, 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 exactly. Every time, um, and you know, like this is we're so used to imagining China as this dystopian society where, like, you people get disappeared, anything could happen to you, um, that we will believe any sort of baseless claims about it. Like people literally believe that the Chinese government harvests organs of political prisoners or harvests the organs of Falun Gong. And there's just like no evidence mm-hmm. to suggest that. But people believe it because it just sounds like something the CPC would do. Yeah. <sighs> well, it's been repeated so many times, right? Mm-hmm. It's now like embedded in the popular imagination. Mm-hmm. So when uh, where you talk about China organ harvesting, people just take it for granted that oh that's that's that is something that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, even even folks who are supposedly progressive or left wing about all kinds of issues, um, that they also believe that stuff because it's just embedded in the narrative of the news media, the, the mainstream uh, left wing news media supposedly that everybody consumes. Yeah. It's like weaponized Mandela effect that could very well lead us into another world war. It's it's just it's insane to contemplate. Um, so uh, bringing it back to uh, what Gina said, like what you said way back uh, earlier, uh, like see trying to see like kind of comparing this to the Matrix, feeling like you're seeing like you're kind of like seeing some foundational like reality to it that is kind of it's um that and how that's really stressful uh i kind of wondered how you thought like i feel like there's i feel like we're at a tipping point where despite like all the denial that we're seeing in other uh like asian people at least um i feel like it's still more freeing to me to have seen that than to not have seen that um like honestly like like being really frustrated like not knowing what's going on being really upset anxious um, and then just like and like kind of leaning into po- like like political activation is actually what kind of like brought me out of that in a sense. Um, I like I don't think the binary is just like assimilate, be in denial, just be your good American and you'll be fine. Like, I don't think that option exists anymore. I'm, I mean, I think our argument is that that option never really existed to begin with but now more than ever that path is is not viable it's not there's nothing at the end of it that will ultimately nourish or nourish you or uh enable you and your family to thrive like that's not even an option anymore so that's clearly a dead end uh and the other side is is a more unexplored terrain like what happens um when you know all the bobo liberals rise up right so to speak um 
But for people, I guess this is more for people who are feeling that anxiety, feeling that uncertainty, um, not really being having the like political or historical framework to kind of, I feel like there's still a lot of people who get surprised by the news that comes out. Like I knew this was a big question, especially when all the attacks were happening. Like, why is this happening? Like I knew friends who were, who were talking about this, like, it's some like crazy coincidence that all of these like Asian seniors in New York city were getting attacked. Like they, like it was really hard to process that. Um, like, I feel like they actually were dealing with a bigger dose of anxiety uh, because like, because like that they were still relatively new in that process. Like, so I don't know how you feel. Like, I know it's stressful. I think it's really isolating, alienating, frustrating, and really scary to kind of be, to be going against the narrative. But um, I still feel happier for having accepted, uh, accepted what I feel to be a more defensible, like to be on the right side of history, to use a cliche, uh, than to try to like uh, force my way into some, into a more denialist position. That's more like superficially comfortable. Does that ring true to how you feel? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I do absolutely think, I mean, and I am biased because I'm on this side of the fence now mm-hmm. and I don't think I can honestly say how it would feel for me to be ignorant of all of this stuff again. Um, Cause I don't think I could possibly go back to it to that even if I tried. Um, but I absolutely do feel like I'm a little bit more grounded um, in a way more grounded in my own sense of identity too. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because um, Asian American identity is, to me, it's so tied to the politics of why we're here, you know, Mm -hmm. and the truth of what our uh, home countries, you know, are really dealing with um, in terms of U.S. imperialism. And I, for some reason, I feel like the two of you have been radicalized for quite a long time, and I'm a more recent arrival <laughs> to no. this circle. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, my, my history is I went to I went to a big tech tech school. And you know, that um, stereotype goes around that colleges are like leftist indoctrination tanks, like just cranking out communists. Uh, I studied mechanical English. Um, <laughs> right like me i'm like i'm thinking about college i'm like i'm sorry what like we literally had wings on campus that were controlled by the dod right yeah, like class yeah. like mechanical engineering so like freshman and i it's amazing to me that looking back like i didn't see a problem with this but you know i was 17 and you're kind of stupid at that age uh like our problem sets would be like okay your your pro your job right now is to fa- find a way to um bring down this airplane with a frozen turkey this is like thermodynamics um like all of our education was built around like weaponry um implicitly to like to and a lot of us do go on to like and the nsa the cia the dod um aerospace uh, you know military contractors definitely not you know leftist indoctrination um camp um so, you know, I kind of just bought that. Like Obama came into office well, during my time in college. And I really felt like that was a turning point. Like 
Um, and honestly, that led that got me deeper into that pulled me actually deeper into the matrix, so to speak. Like here I am, I'm studying, you know, I'm studying engineering. I might take a job at like a military contractor. Who knows, right? I'm very comfortable seeing like armed guards in front of the AI lab or the robotics labs. Like I saw the very first prototypes of that like Boston Dynamics robot dog and that dancing. Like like I saw the very very first prototypes of that way back when. Uh, but the fact that like there's a there's a black man as president, like I really felt like okay, this makes me more committed to that project, not less. And I think that's that was the trap. Like I think he did bring a whole coalition of assimil like assimilationist or assimilated um, minorities in deeper into the fold to buy into the American project. And that was two thousand eight. Yeah. So, um, so it was a long process of kind of un unwinding that stack. And that was a that was yeah. a pretty deep uh process i would say i feel like i can't really blame anyone for any asian american for ever being a boba liberal because that's really that's pretty much the default identity that you default to as an asian american because you like you come here and how do you learn about you know if there is a language barrier which is often the case between um us and our families, because we are often pressured to assimilate. Um, How do we ever really uh, learn about the countries of our origin? It's through the public education system, which Mm -hmm. is like tremendously anti-communist and presents like a very U.S. centric uh, vision of history. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we become adults and, you know, we sort of feel like, like, this a disconnect between us and our culture and the only avenue that we have to like reconnect with it is through consumption. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, like I was guilty of it too. Um, I, you know, like that's what they expect of you, um, in schools, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for scholarship applications, I would talk, I would, they were like very assimilationist oriented. Um, you know, I would write about like what felt like being caught between two worlds, two cultures. (laughs) My family fled the communist regime and came Mm -hmm. here to start a new life. Even though I don't think they actually did that. I think that might might have been. (laughs) I think my parents came here to be communists. So (laughs) like it's it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, They were blacklisted. uh, They were blacklisted by the uh, John Duhan regime in South Korea. Um, And so Mm -hmm. they, they actually couldn't find like work uh, because they Mm -hmm. were like leftists in South Korea, which was a notoriously anti-communist. So they actually came here to, uh, they were recruited by, by uh, UCLA to come here to study. And then they were just, they just stayed. Um, mm-hmm. so I like telling the story, like, no, my parents came here to be communist. So if you're looking for an anti-communist like story, you're going to have to like move along. Yeah. Um, I can't provide I that. For yeah. You. My parents weren't necessarily like anti-communist, but they, they left before China, um, you know, uh, opened up and instituted mm-hmm. the capitalist reforms. Um, and so they came here because they were just like dirt poor in China. Um, so they came here um, to try and make a better life for themselves. And I always, I can't help but wonder like, oh, if you could have like stuck it out just a little longer, yeah. you know? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, 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 um, I'm still waiting for the right time to have that conversation with my parents. Like, do you regret it? Yeah. Do you regret yeah. it? Like looking back, uh, another topic for another time. Maybe we'll start of wagons again to talk that one out. Um, so, yeah. I know to some degree my grandma regrets it. Well, my grandma absolutely regrets it. She she talks every day about how she shouldn't have come to America. But <laughs> my mom is kind of, you know, on that fence. She's starting to lean towards the, you know, maybe this wasn't a great idea. Um, yeah. But I, I think my dad regrets it. it a little bit. I think yeah. my dad regrets it because he's not – he doesn't speak English as well as my mom. And I get the – my mom is just like very like outgoing mm-hmm. and uh, very friendly and uh, she will make friends with anyone. So she didn't have quite as hard of a time like fitting in here than my, than my, than my dad. Um, my dad doesn't speak English very well. Um, and so I feel like um, he does miss China a bit more than my mom. Yeah. Did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess looking like Boba liberal, I, it's taken on a bad connotation, but I feel like maybe liberalism in general is a, is kind of a utopian set of beliefs. It's very like, I mean, we oh, all criticize definitely. it, right? Like it's all about feelings and principles, not really much uh, like action. There's not much action involved or pol- like an actual policies uh, position that you take. So I feel like it, it, it it worked for a certain class at a certain time. Um, like, I don't think it's actually, if you espouse those values, like, I really can't say you're a bad person, you know, like, this idea of, like, equality for all these very lofty, you know, cliched principles, there's, they're not bad. It's just that we've come to a point where, like, the, the lie has been exposed. Like, we mm-hmm. can't afford these values. I mean, we can't, it just doesn't serve people. And we see how they're actually cover for a deep amount of hypocrisy, inequality, anti-liberalism in other Mm -hmm. words. Yeah. And I think like making that realization is like the only path forward because, Mm -hmm. you know, like stop Asian hate. What is that really? It's basically like, like making, like seeking recognition from the state like for rights on the basis of identity. It's an assimilationist demand, Mm -hmm. but like, if I just don't see any way forward, just basing everything on an Asian American identity, I think the only way forward is sort of developing a political consciousness about what unites, I don't want to say what unites people of color or oppressed nationalities and what common interests we all share and Mm -hmm. building like a working class, uh, cross-racial movement based on that, you know, like um, Asian Americans are also harassed by police. Um, Asian American sex workers are targeted and harassed by police. Asian Americans are also, um, victims of police brutality and police violence. Um, We're all all exploited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all exploited as uh, a class, Mm -hmm. um, as uh, laborers, as workers. So I, I mean, I just feel like that is, if you really want to address 
um, anti-Asian hate, like this is the only way forward. Yeah. That, and yeah. like building solidarity with Asians, like, uh, like not in the U S mm-hmm. um, with Asians in Asia. Like you guys help. The US We're struggling. <laughs> <laughs> we need your help. guys. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I yeah. mean, I've said this a bunch before. Um, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll totally say it again too. Cause I, I really feel strongly about this, but, um, I try to push that the stop Asian hate hashtag should extend to Asian countries too. Yeah, it should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talk about the uh, public education system that, you know, most of us who grew up here got our knowledge about the U.S.'s place in the world from. It's the underlying assumption in whether you are left wing, quote unquote, or right wing, whether you are a, a liberal Democrat or a Republican, um, the underlying assumption in all of their rhetoric is that America is good. Mm-hmm. Um, is that America espouses this democracy. And the underlying assumption, I feel like a lot of people who um, share the stop Asian hate hashtag, you know, I feel like their underlying assumption is that um, we're better than this. Yeah. And this is somehow this the slip up. America's just slipping up, but really we're better than this. Um, and this is not really who we are. This is just a temporary hardship that we, we have to get through. I see a lot of Asian politicians, um, especially last year, I would see them a lot like Ted Lieu, Judy Chu, uh, our prominent, you know, Asian American politicians who keep like, uh, say like, it would be like every week something happens and they'd be like, we are better than this. This is not the America I know. And like, you're saying this every week. I'm really hoping some realizations <laughs> start happening. Um, like, like when, when can we connect some dots here? <laughs> you know, like that's, that's how it was framed to me. Like, like going back to college, like you would, like you would inadvertently learn about the history of wars just through the vehicle of like learning engineering, because so much of our tech derives from military technology. Um, and that's, and like, you just see like staggering things get just hidden between the lines. Like, oops, we accidentally uh, dropped a whole shit ton of bombs on Laos. Oops. It, like, like astounding things get can get like whitewashed under the cover of that was a mistake. We are fundamentally good, um, which I think plays yeah. out into like we're talking like he, like wars here between countries, and this also plays out interpersonally too, in the coverage of like of crimes com- like the the difference in how we cover like white school shooters, white mass shooters. Versus, um, versus when anyone else uh, commits a crime, like this is always seen, like their their innocence is always kind of assumed. Um, this is a slip up. There is some better angel to appeal to in their nature uh, that we just the rest of us do not have. Um, it's it's just a fun. It's just a very profoundly scary thing to see. Um, just how vulnerable that uh, that realization. It's a realization of vulnerability. Like there is very little protection out there when push comes to shove like that. Um, I wish I had a more productive thing to say to close that out, but it's, I guess it's just, this is just my mindset right now. Like it's, it's very, it feels very vulnerable. Um, it's a very vulnerable moment. Uh, and I actually like, I, I think that's like stop Asian hate. I think it interpersonally kind of boils down to please be nicer to me. 
Um, uh-huh. You know, yeah. it's really, that's what it comes down to. Like, I just want you to be nicer to me. Um, and I understand that impulse because, you know, that's very appealing when you're anxious, when you're feeling alone and isolated, uh, powerless. Um, it's very easy to want that. And I think it's very normal and human. It's just, um, it's just such a dead end. Um, there's no, there's no, there's nothing productive that can come out of that. You're either going to get, you're either just a, a recipient of temporary charity, which will be rescinded the minute you step out of line. Um, there's no actual power to that. Um, so I think I, that's just the message. Like, it's not a, it's not a very empowered one, I think, to say that. But it's, I think it was a very important realization to me. Like, there is no help that you can truly count on by just appealing to someone's better nature like that. That's, that's fundamentally. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious uh, if you have, you know, um, so if you feel like the stop Asian hate hashtag is in some ways counterproductive because it stays surface level and doesn't address the root problem, is there actually a pithy slogan that people can all unite around and, you know, go viral? And I mean, because my my little private group chat debated over this for for so long for so long we threw in like the yellow peril tried to do something with the yellow peril hashtag but too many asian um american folks still cringe at the the idea of of yellow or the yellow being associated mm. with even even if we're trying to use it in like an empowering way they were like i'm not yellow like that's not the point. The point is yellow peril. Like you should know what that is by now, and you should be able to talk about it. They're like, is your no, group the racist. is your group the one that created that hashtag? I don't think that we created the stop Asian. I think that kind of organically came out of several people. Oh, okay. you know, because um, I mean, it got tagging. It, it. it did good work. So if I, I mean, I don't want to disparage it necessarily um because i it did it's very it's very short it's to the point um and honestly like if we're just talking like just like stop hate criming us for god's sake um it's a it's good it's i mean it gets that job done i think it's just when yeah um like when we're thinking of a model in like getting to a more root cause instead of just reacting to uh constant you know crimes like constant instances of these problems um then it starts to feel a little like it falls short like that's not that can't be the end all be all um for yeah. the framework of what we're talking about for and it's really hard to i mean everything that we talked about it's so hard to like pack that into a single hashtag mm-hmm. That isn't you know, like a whole history so, book, so like hashtag why you should have never gotten into China in the first place. Two years ago. <laughs> you can start getting out right now, but and and then we, we might call it even. Like that's a little long. Um, uh, yeah, um, no, I, I like it. Know. Let's do it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, like spend the entire it, character yeah. limit on the hashtag. That's it. Yeah. Um, I don't. Know. I don't think there's like any way that you can address it without like politicizing it. Um, yeah. so maybe like defund the Pentagon, stop I or like hashtag like stop Asian hate, defund the Pentagon. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. That would solve so many of these issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> defund the CIA. Let's actually, let's actually just t- ratchet that down. Yeah. Um, 
because it's again it's like yeah the style of a- a- asian hate it still um only links this violence to very interpersonal like peer relations like it's simply me as an asian per- it's it's really encompasses the the violence that can occur between say like me an individual asian person and some like stranger on the street it doesn't even it does it doesn't even cover like institutional violence right like police brutality or imp- imprisonment or uh, it doesn't cover any of that it it's it's seriously just like an asian person versus a random attacker on a subway um mm-hmm. and and it just needs to be relentlessly said that that's not that's not the source of the problem um and this is a manufactured uh this is a manufactured social condition that comes from way up top like we are the least responsible for for that what about us hashtag us out of asia Stop Asian like hate, it. U.S. out of Asia. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that my turning point um, from being a boba liberal, so to speak, to being a little bit more radicalized and kind of aware about, um, you know, the, the U.S.'s place in the world with regard to Asia and Asian countries, including my my own home country, is that... Um, getting rid of that underlying assumption that America saved my country. Cause I mean, as an, as an Asian American and you, you grow up in this country and you sort of challenge that assumption, which everybody growing up will, will say it, will tell you that um, indirectly or directly. I've mm-hmm. had people tell me directly like, Hey, Oh, you're from Korea. You should be grateful to America. It's like, kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. The number of I've people. I think that. it only slowed down in adulthood because they just got old and started like dying, honestly. But I remember like as a kid, like as a, they'd be like, oh, my grandpa served in Korea. And there'd always be like this pause, like, come on, say it. Thank me. Like, oh no, I'm God, not going to. What God. am I supposed to? I'm. Thank you for going to my parents' homeland, murdering a bunch of people, and now I'm here talking to your, to your that's stupid so, ass. That's so weird to me because, uh, like, China was never really, you know, there was no U.S. war in China, so I that just seems that's inconceivable to me that like some white person would come up to you and be like, "Oh, my family member," uh, mm-hmm. like. My family members sir, was in Korea and served in Korea, and you know, part of this larger force that forced a bunch of women into sex work and like destroyed mm-hmm. your country. Like, yeah, there's you one guy. Who, like, I was trying to like get away, but, but I was really young and, and like you know, uh, I just felt like like okay, I need to listen. I was kind of frozen in place. He was telling me about like how he was one of the vanguard to invade Incheon, to land in Incheon. Mm-hmm. I'm like. Oh, oh wow. you're telling me you were in the cohort that slaughtered 300,000 Koreans in a single day? And you're telling this to me as if this is something I should be happy. It's that it's that insistence that there's something in this, this unquestioned insistence that there was something in that story that I should be grateful for. It's a really yeah, insidious, yeah. like, pervasive mentality. Um it's unlike it's unlike I think American uh, like American relations with Japan or even Vietnam. There's something about like the Korean War that I think really brings this out. Um, this like this 
this overt sense of like benevolent like this is like the like the purest manifestation of the white man's burden in their life. I think it has something to do with like the boogeyman of North Korea Mm -hmm. and um you know if it weren't for the U.S. then you would all be living under a North Korean dictatorship right now. Yeah. I think that's like what's going on in the backs of their minds. Yeah. Like if the U S yeah. had won uh, in Vietnam and South Vietnam had turned into, you know, a democratic democratic puppet state, I think that mm-hmm. same attitude would have per- persisted there. Yes. Um, yes. It's, it's that history at post invasion and occupation um, that really feeds the, that provided the, like the, the fuel for this, this savior uh, complex in them um yeah. yeah i mean i just i just wanted i i brought it up because i just feel like questioning that constant assumption that even the most quote-unquote progressive liberals make that america has gone around and made a bunch of people's lives better by military intervention you know whether or not we've made mistakes and done some bad things Mostly America has been a force for, for good, mm-hmm. you know, in military intervention in, in Asia and questioning that and saying, no, like I, I, I don't feel grateful to be here mm-hmm. and you, you should stop asking me to be, to act grateful that I'm here. Um, that really distanced me from a lot of what was then my, my social circle. Mm-hmm. So it's a very distancing move to start questioning that assumption to, you know, your average social circle here in the U.S. Um, And I think that, you know, folks who are starting to go down the path of being maybe a little bit more radicalized, um, you know, questioning the U.S. media narrative, it's going to be kind of an isolating thing to do that. It's going to be an isolating journey because it's going to make a lot of people really kind of antagonize you and put distance, you know, between them and you. And, you are more than likely going to have to find a whole new social circle, you know, because um, a lot of folks are just not going to accept you saying stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It completely goes against the mainstream media narrative, um, even for the most open-minded of, of folks, which is kind of scary. Yeah, um, it's akin to poking at someone's religious beliefs. I think it's the propaganda uh, and the indoctrination has gotten to that point where if you poke at it, it's literally like you're slandering a religion. Um, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a thing to take lightly. I think um, it's definitely very scary, especially to come across like beliefs, like in people that you're close to that maybe you grew up with and really close. To, it's really, it's, it was really hard for me to see that. Um, and then mm-hmm. to not know how to bridge that. Like at some point, like I think for a long time, it was like, I just, like, okay, I'm just not going to talk politics. Um, but at some point that stops being tenable too, because we're all in this together. Um, it's really, it's really hard to see like corrosive beliefs or really damaging denialist beliefs propagate in your circle. Um, so there's a lot of, um, it's not just an internal process. It does have ramifications, um, in your, in your life. So it's not a process to take lightly, but, um, the one thing I can say is like, I'm not, I'm not saying that like I'm I'm I've reached uh, radicalization nirvana or anything. I'm still like this is obviously all a work in progress. I still feel more fulfilled have, knowing all of this. Like I feel like I'm happier for knowing that history. I know where I stand. It's not just on like abstract principles or beliefs that are really fuzzy. It's actually based on history. It's stuff that's already happened. Things that we can measure and prove. 
um, and that you can benchmark to see where we are right now against what's gone on. Like it's a very stable, to me, it feels like a very stable foundation to be thinking about the world. So um, I think in a sense, like what I've traded in, like, like the, the warm fuzzies, just kind of getting along to get along, I have traded it for more certainty. And that goes along, that went a long way to managing like my own anxiety over things. And it definitely made me less inclined to like, um, to, to force my politics into a more like appeasing direction. Like if you're not without, if you're without principles or a firm foundation, the only politics you have is appeasement. You're appeasing somebody that you perceive to have more power than you. Um, and like, I find that to be very corrosive right now. So um, if there's a message just simply to encourage people to, um, to take, to try to think about that path and see where you fit on it. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Was there, I mean, do you, is there a single like event or anything that you guys um, can think of that kind of really shook your beliefs? I, I know how, I know how embedded, how entrenched I was, like, especially during the Obama years, like be like working in tech, a really hot industry at the time. Like it's, you're really uh, like you drink the Kool-Aid without realizing it. Like it's, it's a really tough process. For me, um, it was when I was uh, when I was in college, and uh, you know, it was see, it was like years after nine eleven, um, and so I, so the Middle East was just this uh, air region of the world that I knew nothing about, and so I wanted to like learn about it more and study it more. Um, and so I took, uh, I was an anthropology major, so I took an anthropology of the Middle East course, and it was taught mm -hmm. by um, this really great professor who, um, she, her area of research was Palestine and Palestinian refugees. And uh, I had, she sort of gave me an introduction to this conflict, which is really a military occupation of uh Palestine by Israel, which is mm -hmm. basically like a U.S. puppet state. Um, and so I, I was just, you know, my mind was completely blown by seeing how the situation was presented in the media um, versus what I was reading and what she was teaching me. And so I, you know, like that summer after I finished that semester, I traveled to Palestine um, oh. and I, I went to the West Bank and uh, I met uh, people there and I talked to them and, you know, I was once again astounded by the narrative that we're presented in corporate media, um, which basically uh, frames this as an issue of two powers coming to the table uh who are like equal equals, mm -hmm. right. And, or oftentimes Israel is the victim of Palestinian terrorism. Right. Um, and so, you know, like I was in the West bank and I walked around and I saw this like wall, this apartheid wall, just snaking across uh, like uh, Palestinian territory and cutting off uh, Palestinians from like their water sources 
cutting off Palestinians from their family members. Um, and then like, I would go to Hebron where, you know, uh, basically there were these settlements, uh, that are like, this is these Israeli settlements that are situated on top of these hills. And, um, you know, like Palestinians would have to go through like checkpoints uh, to get to like where they lived or get to school or, you know, like I would talk to Palestinians who would be like constantly harassed by like Israeli soldiers or Israeli settlers. Um, And so that I think that was really the turning point for me. because that was really the first time that I saw something like a narrative presented in the media where it was completely different than the reality on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that was a turning point in terms of like me starting to question uh, what we read in newspapers and, um, um, that's powerful. It's like right in front of you. I mean, Um, that's really powerful because you're like literally seeing it. You can touch this wall that literally separates Palestinians from a resource like water. And you can compare that to like the New York Times and their florid hand wringing over uh, Mm -hmm. Israelis suffering from Hamas or something. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think at that time I started like being like a little bit more critical of what I read. I read in the newspapers. Um And yeah, I try to apply that kind of analysis to, you know, foreign coverage uh, of like what we read uh, in like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember following, starting to follow politics um, as a younger person a lot more after, um, you know, obviously 9-11 and then we invaded um, Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, I think that the the lies that the media had told at that time co- came out a bit later, yeah. you know, were exposed to the lies about the weapons of mass destruction and things like that. But I think it, it sort of flew under the radar for me. It's like it didn't register um, in my mind as like, shaking the foundations of um, believing in, you know, the uh, American American project or the American empire. Um, I think it wasn't until much later that um, I think it became a little bit more personal to me. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm the product of U.S. military occupation in Korea because my father was a, a soldier. And so I think I, was kind of born to be a supporter of U.S. empire because of because of that. But I've also kind of lived I've lived the um, consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think reading a little bit more about what the U.S. really did in Korea. Um, yeah, that was kind of what started to turn me around. And then um you know, my grandmother talking to her more and having her um, talk a little bit more about the hardships that she faced. Um, You know, she grew up 
during that uh, during colonialism and also during that that kind of occupation and the war um it the pieces started to come together for me i was like okay all these things that i've just accepted i can't i don't feel honest talking the way i used to talk about america anymore mm-hmm. um you know i used to i used to say that i was patriotic that i was you know that mostly that america was good and now thinking back on that it's like a whole lifetime ago mm-hmm. um it really it really turned around for me after i started and then i i started reading and then realizing like none of this was ever taught to me growing up like mm-hmm. um you know the korean war is a part of american history and yet it's not really taught you know in american schools um Asian American history in general is just not really taught in American schools, um, mm-hmm. in grade school and things like that. So, I mean, I just went down this rabbit hole of reading about history without the filter of that kind of, um, you know, American exceptionalism. And I started, I started, it really just turned my worldview around. Um, yeah. I think sometimes, um, it's really interesting to me how some people can recognize that, um, you know, we may not be getting the full truth of how we perceive one thing, but they don't like recognize something else. You know, like Mm -hmm. most leftists will say that um, the coverage of Palestine is like skewed, Mm -hmm. but they won't, apply that level of analysis to China, right? Mm -hmm. Or they won't apply that level of analysis to North Korea, the DPRK. Yeah. It's like the State Department was wrong about (laughs) everything except Asia. They're right up. Exactly. 100% correct about anything to do with Asia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a really, it's a really noticeable blind spot or I don't know if blind spot is the right word. Racist. I think that's where racism comes into play here. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really scary. Like, yeah, just you read about it and like, oh fuck, it's me versus the the U.S. Pentagon. Fuck. Like, there was actually like a moment of like personal fear. Like, oh shit. Like, nothing can be the way it was now. Like, I'm opposing like the U.S. Pentagon. Oh man, I I really wish we could go. Like, there's is a part of me that personally wants that security of belief um in thinking like okay if we had we had a black man as president um and if we could like and just being so certain okay like hillary clinton was next we are on a good trajectory like i think that like my belief was um like there was something fundamentally good and noble about the american project the catastrophes and disasters were absolutely real but at least like there's a good trajectory like we are recognizing it and moving on and then seeing how that's actually not happening is 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 a really personally uh scary realization for me so didn't the um anti-china rhetoric kind of reach a new level with Obama though wasn't he kind so. of yeah the pivot to Asia um it's yeah. I mean the real the real foundations I think started under Clinton actually uh, like neo like really like turbocharging neoliberalism so his third way was we can undersell we can undercut American labor we can undercut 
American manufacturing. We can ship it all overseas. Uh, and he's very explicit in saying, but they will have no choice. They meaning like POC, you know, marginalized people, everyone is excluded from the traditional GOP. They will have no choice but to vote for us. So our, our power is guaranteed in this duopoly. And since we only have two, they can play off each other. So a lot of like Clinton policies were carried over by Bush, who then enacted his own, who pushed everything right more. And then Obama inherited a lot of those and did nothing to retract those. So like that video you mentioned in 2010, talking about like how China is going to own us. I think that is a response to seeing like the economic conditions being wrought by American neoliberalism. But this is but like, but deflected. It's the lens is shifted onto China, when in reality, if the real problem, if such a problem existed, we'd have to point it squarely back at American, uh, at the American political elite, who undercut yeah. all of us for a generation plus at this point. Um, so if, I mean, it's actually true, a, lot, a ton of capital, a ton of labor, a ton of, um, the rhetoric is, you know, China stole our jobs. No, like, they, we allowed... We allowed corporations, yeah. we allowed them to uh, manipulate, to use, to leverage uh, China as an underpowered but massive um, population to provide labor and resources. We offshored our pollution, basically, uh, reaped the benefits, and then turned around to blame China again. Um, so- yeah, and it just lets, you know, who's really at fault here off the hook, the capitalist class, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not China that's to blame um, for, uh, like, you know, jobs shipping over there. Yeah. The, the jobs were shipped over there by the capitalists so that they could um, reap a bigger profit. But you don't, it's just, like, much easier for people to, like, be xenophobic and racist and blame China. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot harder to shift, but I mean, I just like, like once that consciousness shifts, I have to believe that eventually the situation will get so bad here that people will have no choice but to react to domestic politics. And I feel like this is a missed message, like you, like that a lot of people don't really see like, um, ultimately like you two get called tankies all the time, slandered um, as like secret CCP agents. By the way, if you guys are getting a check from them, let me in on this. Like, Okay, so I, this is like this is one thing that bothers me, right? Yeah. Is like the constant accusations of being paid by yeah. the Chinese government. And it's like, if I really wanted to make money, wouldn't it be a better idea to just like be one of those Asian Americans who yeah. constantly write New York Times op-eds like demonizing Mm -hmm. China wouldn't that make more sense like there's actually money in that (laughs) I I saw that salary breakdown this is like this is like three hundred four hundred thousand dollar a year jobs and if you secure a job at a think tank I mean you're set for life (laughs) um so like I, and it's so frustrating to see that, like you, you two, and a whole host of other people doing fantastic work. It's ultimately like, like the slander is always that you're in support of a foreign regime, China in this case, which makes no sense. Like, like China, you're Korean. Like, it really makes. I like. I feel like people don't. Anyway, yes, idiots exist. Anyway, um, like if if people were actually 
concerned about domestic problems as they so often claim to be, I feel like the message would come across a lot stronger that what you guys, uh, what the message actually is, is if you pay attention to this seriously, you're actually providing a roadmap to fixing problems at home. You're pointing the lens back. You're saying like, no, this can't, you can't, you're being told to look over there, but actually the problem is over here. So in that sense, how are you serving a foreign power in this case? If people were to take that message seriously and acted on it, things would get better here. Um, which does not affect, I mean, this does not, I mean, China's a big, China's a big boy. China doesn't actually need people to like go on Twitter and say, and like defend China. Right. Um, like, that's not the point. The point is to expose, like, you guys are here looking, living here, invested in your well, in your well-being here. Um, so your message ultimately is how to improve things here. Um, if people p- cared to listen. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So this is like, kind of, this is my thought about Xinjiang. Um, okay. Well, I'll say a few things, but. One thing yeah, I knew is, it was like just one thing about Xinjiang. This is gonna be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are like these different ideas yeah. that like I these ways I want to go. But first of all, most I would think that most people, myself, like all of us included, and people who are known online as China def- defenders. I mean, we probably have criticisms of the CPC, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think like we like worship the CPC. I just think what people don't realize is that at a time where uh, in this political moment where the CPC, China is seeing like constant attacks and the U.S. is sort of, um, you know, um, prepping the population for like military confrontation or excuse to sanction them. I just don't think it's appropriate to like go on my platform of 50,000 followers and just like criticize the CC, the CPC. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't think it's a good, like I might do it. Like I might like sort of have a conversation about it with like offline with a few of my friends Mm-hmm. But I just don't think like where the starting point isn't okay. First off, let's debate whether Chinese people are humans. Okay, after yeah. we establish that, then we can move on. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And like this, um, this whole conversation about Xinjiang, um, which like to me is an internal matter, China's internal matter. What good? does it really do for us as Americans like sitting in America to like constantly criticize them for this and just like, you know, what can we really do about it? I just don't see like how we can really change it, but we can change what goes on domestically, yeah, like the policies that our politicians implement. So I just think it makes more sense to focus on that rather than like, like the policies of a completely different country where that we have no control over that we, where we don't like vote people in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
there's a lot of this like a raising awareness, yeah. you know, the notion of raising awareness that um, dominates like Twitter and TikTok, you know, it, no matter where in the world this thing is happening, there's an American uh, Zoomer with hashtags and, you know, like a 15 second video just scolding everybody for like not talking about this mm-hmm. and it being the, the top topic of your your feed. Why isn't everybody talking about this genocide happening um, in Xinjiang? You know, um, you guys are so comfortable sitting in, in your uh, cushion, you know, first world spaces. And why aren't you guys talking about this? And it's it really is just like, what do you expect me to do? Um, yeah what do you expect me to do about it? I'm not, I'm not going to go over there. Hmm. Um, yeah. There was this like crazy TikTok that someone, um, that someone made here in LA. Um, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's this guy young. It seems like a, like a Gen Z guy um, walking around, like walking around in public. And then he's trying to like raise awareness about the genocide in Xinjiang. Um, and in the background, you can see like the homeless encampment along like behind him oh my god so he's like yeah. walking like he's like he's getting really worked up talking about like you know the cpc we need to be taking strong stance on this you know blah 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 and you can see like 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 a home like a homeless encampment in the background he's and like that just like like and i feel like that just encapsulated the uh the kind <laughs> of the, the entirety of the situation like you're not you're not looking at the thing that's literally behind you you can actually help that situation a little not not all you can do you, that's more available to you to understand and help with than this genocide that's happening a world away in a language and country that is not yours you have no idea what's what's going on yeah. you can't do anything what you're gonna like because you made that tiktok the pentagon's gonna like divert resources to fly to china that's not gonna happen this this machine is way bigger than you you can't you can't help you might be able to help that homeless guy behind you though. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. It, it's also the same as like that battered women um, thread that went viral on Twitter talking about how, um, how many domestic violence cases, you know, women being um, murdered by their spouses or, or beaten or something like that in, in China that was going around uh, yeah. U.S. Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, English-speaking Twitter. Yeah. And I'm like, do you want to really compare the stats uh, of domestic violence cases here versus over there? Because I think you're going to be really surprised if your focus is domestic violence over there yeah. and you're a women's rights advocate. It's a lot worse over here, I guarantee yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah. So we've been at this a little while and I respect your time. I'm, I'm again, really thankful to both of you for making the time to talk. I, I'm personally really happy that we got the chance to, to gripe and talk things out. Um, any, um, any closing thoughts or any, anything you wanted to share? Feel free to lecture or yell or just anything. If it's just a rage <laughs> scream, just get it out. Feel free. This floor is yours. No, I'm just I'm so happy to to get the chance to talk to you guys. I mean, yeah. you're like two of my favorite accounts on on Twitter. I've been following y'all for quite some time and so it's great to be able to like see your faces and yeah. hear your voices and like have this conversation with you. It's it's great. Yeah. Um um 
yeah, I mean, that's that's basically it. And then like I keep going back to this topic, but like the this whole thing ever since the start of COVID, even it's not just COVID, but everything else, all of the bullshit piled on top of that. It's it's it can be isolating for a lot of people. I know it has been for me and I found just that little bit of sanity through like one finding accounts like you guys and following you guys and keeping up with that kind of dialogue. Um, so like no matter how bad it gets, I still have people who I feel like I can talk to, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's virtual. And I would just ask anybody listening, you know, if they're feeling like isolated in a similar way, you know, reach out to people, you know, um, like reach out to me. I have this group chat that's going on like 15 members now. We've just been continuously adding people because I'll see some random person like feel like they're screaming into the void on Twitter all by themselves. And I'm like, hey, you want to join that's our so group nice. chat? <laughs> You're like a den mother for, for like oh. Twitter refugees. That's so sweet. I, that's really nice. Actually. That's, a, that's, a, that's a great thing to have. Like Twitter can be a really toxic, dangerous place. Um, to yeah. have some people who have your back. Like, I remember going on Twitter like years ago and then just like, because I, it's not like I networked with other people or like connected with other like friends that I knew in real life. It was just kind of like a massless, uh, just kind of like a void of garbage. And it was really scary. Um, and it's like, it's like trying to get engaged, like with principles, with an actual foundation and actually knowing people um, that made a real big difference. So Twitter is super toxic, but I find if, if you, if you engage with it in the right way, then it's, it's not quite as toxic. Like if you just like, if you ever in doubt, just block or mute, um, never, never try to get into like a back and forth argument with a Mm -hmm. troll. Every time I've done that in the few instances, I try to have some self-control in terms of that, but every time that I like lost my self-control and did it, I regretted it every time. So, um, yeah, but, uh, like if you do that, you can find, you know, some pretty great people to talk to on Twitter. Um, I am, uh, I'm really grateful for, you know, Thank you for inviting me onto this episode. Um, it's just, I, there, there are very few people who are actually making like the links, the systemic links um, and causes of anti-Asian racism. So I think it's just like a real breath of fresh air to, um, to be able to like talk to, sorry, to talk to the both of you um about it and i'm really grateful for that opportunity so yeah yeah (laughs) um just for listeners um both amanda and gina have been on the show before i'll link two very great episodes um i'll i'll make sure that those are linked in the in the show notes as well so hopefully this isn't hopefully this is the start of more content to come i i really enjoyed talking to you guys so um hope you please stay safe please stay sane um it as much as possible (laughs) if sanity is possible in such times. But um, yeah, really glad to meet you guys um, face to face. Um, I'm really bad at this. Okay. I'm just going to cut it here. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right. Thank you both. And thank you to everyone listening. Tune in next time. Okay. Okay.